Well, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to uh, go to Govins in Menominee or, uh, or some other opportunity. Maybe you've got animals at your home um, to play with uh, newborn animals or at least witness them. Um, I know uh, my kids have, have loved being there, and, and these are fantastic scenes. Uh, sheep um, are super cute when they're little, these lambs. Uh, and chicks are adorable too. We've got adorable little baby animals. And yet, Scripture reminds us that being sheep isn't necessarily a desirable quality. Uh, we can be stinky as sheep. We can be kind of wandering and lost. Uh, we can have kind of a herd mentality and just go wherever the mob goes. But as Jesus invites us in the verse that we read from John 14, he says he's the good shepherd. And so we want to be sheep because he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. He tells us that his sheep recognize his voice and they follow where he goes. Uh, And so we want to be sheep. We want to admit how we're sheep in less desirable ways, but we also want to strive to be sheep who stay close to the Good Shepherd, who stay close to Jesus, who belong to Him, who find ourselves in Him. And so that is the theme of our Lenten series this year. I just want to be a sheep. I just want to be one who belongs to Jesus. But as we reflect on being a sheep and uh, we desire that, we also want to wrestle with those aspects of being wandering sheep, those aspects of being of the things in the verses in the song uh, that say we don't want to be like these things. We want to be sheep who are close to Jesus. We don't want to be like a Pharisee. Now, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at this week. And we need to be honest. It's a generalization. Uh, Not every Pharisee was bad, but we do know that in the vast majority of experiences that we see in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with Pharisees, the Pharisees are in opposition to him. And so while there are notable Pharisees like Nicodemus who sought out Jesus and pursued the truth and stood up for Jesus, and that in principle the Pharisees wanted to study the Word of God and live it out in very specific ways, There are honorable parts of that, but the song highlights uh, some of the negative things that we see in Jesus' experience with the Pharisees. And so tonight, we want to wrestle with wanting to be a sheep and wanting to be close to Jesus, but not wanting to be a Pharisee. Someone who is defined maybe less by their faith in their relationship with Jesus and their honest reflection than in their head knowledge or their behavior. And so we want to look at that tonight, and we're going to do that by taking a peek uh, at one of my favorite accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Let me pray as we begin. Father God, we come before you tonight, and we invite you to be here. We know you're here already. We know that we're in your house and that you invite us into your presence. 
But we also want to invite you into our experience, into our space, into our thoughts. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. We pray that you would reveal truth to us and that you would use it both to convict us and to reassure us. That both the gospel and the law would be at work in us tonight. That we would hear your grace and your truth. That would both would be useful to you as you move us into your arms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, there are a lot of things in this scene that are important for us uh, to make sure we understand. Uh, First, I think this illustration on the screen uh, is a helpful picture of what this meal may have looked like. Um, Because, you know, we sit and we most often sit in chairs at the table with our feet underneath the table. And so this description of a woman standing at Jesus' feet and weeping and wetting his feet is hard for us to picture. But this illustration helps us see what it was like to be reclining at the table with your head near the table and your dirty feet as far from it as possible. Then we also know that Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to dine with him. But we're kind of wondering, how did this woman even enter the scene? And so it's important for us to recognize that in the first century, when 
people of affluence had dinner parties, they became kind of public invitations, public events. And so commoners and poor people could come and kind of gather around and witness what was happening with these people of affluence. So it was kind of like uh, their version of Entertainment Today or People magazines. They could actually come and watch what was happening, what the rich people were talking about. And not only that, but as the meal progressed, uh, kind of the leftovers and the scraps were then available for people who needed food uh, oftentimes. And so crowds would gather just to kind of watch what was happening, to listen in on the conversation. And so this woman joins the crowd and comes in. But while it was maybe typical to have commoners come and watch the scene and listen in on people as they talked, this woman had a public scar on her reputation. People knew her as living a sinful life. And we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, there are lots of possibilities. But we know that whatever it is, her way of life, her lifestyle, or uh, that she had made possibly some big mistake, whatever it is, her reputation is public. It defines her. And in this community, what she's known for, and we don't even learn her name, we just know that she's a woman who's lived a life of sin. And so this woman who has this public disgrace as a reputation, it's a pretty bold move for her to come into this scene and be a part of it, even though commoners were typically welcome in this situation. It's also unusual, I think, for these commoners to actually interact with the guests at the table. And while she's not speaking with Jesus, she comes very close to him. She's hovering at his feet. And as she senses his presence, as she senses the warmth and love that he has for all people, she's overwhelmed with the opportunity to be this woman who knows that she is known only by her disgrace. To be in the presence of Jesus and not be shooed away. And as she listens to him talk, and as she stands in his presence, she's so overwhelmed that she begins to be moved emotionally and she weeps. And the tears stream down her face and drip onto Jesus' feet. So much so that they begin to wash the dust off Jesus' feet. And then she's... She may be stressed about that or maybe just in this kind of worshipful, worshipful sense that she just wants to care for Jesus. She sees the tears on his feet and she decides to wipe them dry and the only thing available to her is her hair. She's brought an alabaster jar of perfume, perfumed oil. And we know from other accounts that this is a very valuable heirloom, that it may be the most valuable possession that she has, but she's brought it with her. Maybe she keeps it with her everywhere she goes, but that this meal 
she's in Jesus' presence. She's so overwhelmed by who he is and the experience of being with him that she breaks open the jar and pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. Now we talked about Pharisees, that the heart, the intent of the pharisaical system was good. They wanted to follow God and they wanted people to know how to follow God, to see the truth of God's word impact daily lives. But Simon, as an example of Pharisees in this account, is not a positive example. And so as we lean into this invitation to be sheep at the feet of Jesus, we want to compare, compare and contrast that with our, with our own kind of nudge and impulse toward being a Pharisee. And each week of this series, we want to wrestle with the invitation that we have to be close to Jesus as his sheep, but we also want to wrestle with our wandering nature as sheep. Our desire to follow the mob and not follow Jesus. Our desire to go our own way and not follow Jesus. And our desires that can be represented by these other verses of this little camp song. And so we want to come to terms with the fact that while we might identify with someone else in the story, there's something about Simon, the Pharisee, that is in us as well. We want to come to terms with it and we want to confess it because that's part of what it means to be a sheep who stays close to Jesus. So as Jesus is at the table and this woman is worshiping Jesus and caring for him at his feet, Simon is sitting in judgment. He's sitting in judgment over this woman, and he's sitting in judgment over Jesus. And he thinks to himself, if this man were as great as people say he is, he would know what kind of person this woman is, that she's a sinner, and that she does not belong near him. And so Simon is being skeptical of Jesus because of his willingness to interact with this woman who has lived a sinful life. But he also stands in judgment over this woman thinking her sin is obvious and his sin is justified. It's already taken care of her. He's worked so hard to eliminate the appearance of sin from his life that he feels like he's boxed it in and he's in a comfortable place. And so uh, we see an example here of what I, what I think uh, this Jewish teacher and psychologist uh, refers to as he talks about I-thou relationships and I-it relationships. It's an important thing that um, I've used in my own life to kind of recognize when there's sin in my life. Uh, it's an important tool that I use with 
couples who are preparing to get married to kind of, I have them read this chapter in, in a book that describes this as well as other things that help us kind of measure when we're doing well in our relationship and when we're kind of asserting ourselves over other people. And so what Martin Buber describes is that the most sacred relationship we can have as human beings is an I-thou relationship where we recognize together the image of God in each of us. We have respect and offer dignity. We respect the dignity of one another. And there's this sacred space between us and we recognize that we're each our own people, our own person, there's something to respect and learn from each of us. And we may uh, struggle. We may have differences that we need to seek to understand. But we have this deep value and respect for one another. But in opposition to this sacred relationship of I-thou, where we recognize the image of God in each of us, is an I-it relationship. Where we just see ourselves as the one who's important and the other people are just in our circle of influence. And most of us don't tend to think totally simplistically in those terms. But we fall into these I-it relationship patterns when we start to minimize the value and humanity in other people and see them as objects that might be in our way, uh, barriers to getting what we want. Uh, some examples... Uh, that um, we can read about in uh, a book that I can't remember the title of right now, uh, but I can get it for you. If, if it's uh, something about healthy spirituality. Uh, so, some examples. Uh, so if I walk in and uh, dump my work on the secretary without saying hello, and I just treat her as someone who is less than human, less than me, but somebody who's just there to get my work done and make my day easier. If I talk about people in authority as if they were subhuman, like when we uh, sometimes talk about police officers or people in government as if they were just kind of less than human, some kind of, we know them only as their title, only as their position, and they're represented by whatever we think about that and not actually as human beings. If I treat my wife or our children as if they are not in charge of their own freedom, dreams, and autonomy, I expect them to be the picture I've, I have for them in my head. I just need them to make my life easier and fall into line and do all the things that I need them to do in order to make this day work out smoothly. When I'm threatened when someone disagrees with my political views, if I label them only by their own political views. That's an I-it example. And if I listen to my neighbor's problems and help them with chores around their house, hoping they will attend the Christmas outreach at our church, but then when they don't, then I move on to someone else. I haven't actually invested in them. I've just looked at them as a project. And when they don't, fulfill my need for them to like do what I want them to do, then I kind of turn and I just leave them and go towards somebody else. These are all examples of I-it relationships. 
But God invites us into I-thou relationships. And Jesus, as he interacts with Simon, also challenges Simon in his lack of respect and understanding for who this woman is. So we learn from Jesus' example here, and, and I love how Jesus responds to Simon. He says, Luke records for us that Simon only thinks these things in his head, but Jesus answers his thoughts and says, Simon, I've, I've got something I want to talk with you about. And Jesus leads into this, this parable because he wants Simon to recognize that sheep, people who are close to the good shepherd, see dignity in each person. They value that. They honor that. They respect it. And they try to build one another up. But Pharisees, as we see in Simon, put people in boxes. They're known only by their labels, known only by what they can do for them, how well they obey them, and not by the image of God in them. So Jesus tells this parable. He says, there's this creditor, this money lender, and he, two other men owed him money. Neither of them could repay the debt. But one of them owed him so much it was worth like a 16 months, 16 and a half months of wages over a year. Over a year and three months, four months. Um, the other one owed him like seven weeks of wages. Both are hefty debts. One certainly more than the other, but neither of them could repay him. And this creditor had grace on them, had, had the opportunity to, to release them, and so uh, the creditor releases them each from their debt. And Jesus says, Simon, which one of them do you think will love the creditor more? And Simon says, I suppose the one with the bigger debt debt forgiven. Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Then he turns to the woman and asks Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? You've labeled her. You have these thoughts about her. You know this scar that she has on her reputation, but do you see her as a woman, a person made in the image of God, made on purpose by God himself. Do you see her? And as we read through Jesus' continued conversation with Simon, we see that he's also asking Simon, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in the correct light? Because you're feeling so good about who you are and all the right and good things that you do. But do you see this woman? And did you recognize the difference in how she's treated me versus how you've treated me? And Jesus goes on and he says, you know that our custom is that as a guest comes into our house, you would offer water to wash their feet. 
Jesus says, but you didn't offer me water for my feet. But this woman, since the time I entered, has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. You did not greet me with the honor of a kiss. The typical welcome of a a friend or an honored guest. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not offer me oil for my head. But this woman has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus says this woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. But those who have been forgiven little love little. And so Jesus also teaches us so first we we see that Pharisees put people in boxes, I-it relationships, and sheep see the dignity in each person, the value that God has for them, I-thou relationships. But we also see that Pharisees measure the sins of others, and the sheep know the weight of their own sin. Simon had removed himself from his sin. He had defined sin in such a way so that he could see it as something that was in his past. That his behaviors were right and he was teaching others to do right things. But he couldn't see that his whole attitude in doing that was still broken and sinful. That he had disregard and disdain for this woman. Judgment over Jesus and not love. But this woman that he judged was overwhelmed by the weight of her sin and so blessed by the grace of Jesus' acceptance and love and grace. She worshiped him. She cared for him. She loved him. In ways that should have been expected of Simon, but he did not offer. The depth of our love for Jesus is tied to our recognition of our own sin. When we start to put it in boxes and and remove ourselves from our sin or see it as something in our past, something less raw, then we're leaning toward that Pharisee in us and leaning away from the sheep who recognizes their desperate need for the good shepherd. Now, I do think it's important. I'm, I'm a feeler. I'm someone who feels things in, in a strong way, and I know lots of people are, are more thinkers. They just process the logic of it. And so... Um, It's important to recognize that it's not necessarily the emotion of this woman that is the measure of her love and her self-reflection. It's the way she demonstrates it. She comes near to Jesus and she bears her soul before him. She cares for him. She offers him all that she is. Whereas Simon sits removed from him, 
removed from her. He thinks in these categories and puts labels on the, his behaviors and labels on the people around him. It reminds me of a friend uh, of mine from seminary, a guy named Rich. And uh, he grew up in a, a tradition, a Christian tradition, where uh, defining sin as something that you can put in a box and know that you left it behind was really important. And so as we were sitting in one of our classes talking about what sin is, that it's not just the behaviors that we do, but this experience, this, this condition deep inside us that even corrupts us so that our, our thoughts and our attitudes are even driven to those behaviors. He was struggling one day, and it, it happened to be a day that we were going to chapel, and he was just kind of blown away, and he, he was kind of reactive. It was always fun to have class with Rich because the, there was almost always something in our class time, uh, at, at least in each class at some point, where Rich would kind of just jump across the table and make some bold pronouncement, like, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life, or... Um, and. And so this day, he was just kind of overwhelmed by this new definition and experience of sin because he was starting to be convicted of things that he thought were in his past, like he could remember the day that he stopped sinning. But this new definition, this more biblical definition of sin was kind of just disturbing him. He didn't know what to do, and so we went to chapel that day. And he told us later as we returned to class that in chapel we were singing these songs and he was just overwhelmed by this fact that like if this is what sin is, what, what should he do? Because he thought he had overcome his sin. He had this kind of Pharisee approach to it. Like if I just define the behaviors and I, I cast away the bad behaviors and I only do the things I know I'm supposed to do, or can find ways that I only do things, like the only bad things I do are things that I didn't intend to do, so they're not so bad. But if I recognize that I'm a sinner, that there are sinful impulses and motivations in me that characterize and color all the things that I do, and what, do I, what do I do? And he said while he was in worship, he just sensed the Spirit speaking to him and saying, repent. And so that day as we were sitting in class and he was talking about what he experienced, his bold statement was, I feel like I just became a Christian for the first time. There's so much in us that wants to feel safe from our sin. We want to be like Simon the Pharisee. We want to be able to define all our behaviors by our own intent and by the things that we know are bad that we stop doing and the things that we know are good that we try to fill our lives with. But when we put all those things in boxes, we remove ourselves from the weight of the sin that's still in us. The sin that leads us in desperation to the feet of Jesus and moves us to tears as we repent 
over the sin in us, the ways that we demean people even in our thoughts, in ways that they wouldn't even know and recognize that they wouldn't expect us to ask forgiveness for, but that we do need to go to the righteous and holy God who made us and say, I am sorry because I know that you made that person whole in your image. You made them on purpose. And I just treated them like something less than. And they don't even know it. But I know it. So we want to be a sheep. And not a Pharisee. We want to be people who recognize the value in all people and are moved by the grace of God to love them and give them grace. We want to be people who know the weight of our own sin, whose love for the Lord is not measured in some list of behaviors that we do well, but it's measured how desperate we are for the forgiveness of the Lord. To be close to Him and know that He's made room for us in the family of God. We don't, we're so drawn to be safe from our sin and to define it in ways that help us feel better and feel safe. But Pharisees define their relationship with God by their behavior and sheep to find their relationship with God by forgiveness. And so we want to be sheep. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And we know the light is shining on us. As you look on us, we're in this spotlight. And we can feel like the sinful woman standing at the feet of Jesus with all her sin obvious to the people who are there. And it's a scary place to be. But in your grace, in your love, by your own sacrifice, you make room for us. You invite us to come in. That's why, that's why you came. Because you're the one who pays for our sin and you make us whole. So we pray that you would move us toward you. We want to be sheep. We don't want to be Pharisees who count on our own behavior and our, our own goodness. We don't want to look at other people as if we're better than them. We just want to be close to you because you're the one makes us whole. So we pray that you'd forgive us of the Pharisee in us, and we pray that you would hold us close and make us yours. In Jesus' name, amen.